So Katie, two people robbed an old blind man and his wife who died of an aneurysm during the commission of the robbery. That is amazing. <laughs> is that funny? That is so funny. And welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm your host, Katie Hopper. <laughs> All right, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. This is the new Useful Idiots. It's Useful Idiots Unchained. Do we have another word for it? Unchained, untethered. Um, right. Useful reclaiming idiots with our time. Useful right. Idiots with a Vengeance. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Use- useful Idiots Ragnarok. That's what I want to Yeah, Ragnarok. With. I have to see that, though, so it, before I can approve that. Uh, anyway, this is, it's a sequel. Uh, we're it's hoping a it's a good sequel, like Godfather. We know two. it's a good sequel. Right. Yeah. Like um, European Vacation, which is better than Vacation. Yeah, I don't know if I can agree you're, with you. On you don't that. know if you can co-sign that take. Yeah, I think I think we're gonna have to have to take that one uh, off air to yes. discuss that. Uh, we're gonna have to have a debate on the Substack only. Yeah, exactly. Have a Substack only debate over. Yeah. Which which Vacation movie was actually the best? But should we tell uh, people? We we kind of told people. People are still asking, even though we gave that really honest explanation about. You know, my attempt in movie deal with um, Bashir al-Assad, which Rolling Stone didn't right. really like. Well, I didn't tell that part about the movie deal. We just talked about my glowing profile and my mind to him to be the third host. Right. And then the chemistry issues off the air that we just we just didn't want to get into. Yeah. Uh, I- the reality is we just don't know. Uh, the, the, I mean, that's, that's the honest answer is the, that we had, let's just say, a parting of ways, a di- differences of... Uh, about something. I, yeah. I mean, Matt's honestly, I'll just, I, I demanded five million an episode. Right. And yes. they, and they wouldn't go any higher than four. Yeah. They so. wouldn't go any higher than four. So, <laughs> so, and honestly, that's a problem because, um, I asked for five million. No, I'm exaggerating. I asked for a contract of just five million a year. And I asked for Matt to get four million a year. Right. And they, because of reparations. And they rejected right. that because they are problematic. Problematic, patriarchal. I mean, patriarchal. I'm just asking, I'm just putting it out there. Like, no bad blood, but you'd think that they would be into paying a woman for her labor and emotional labor that goes right. into doing a show. And actually, um, this is an opportunity for everybody else to make up for the mistake that they made. So, uh, you know, at the end of the show, Katie, you can just offer your Venmo information so that yeah. people can Venmo you for for your emotional labor. Yeah. Right. Or, or a compromise is they can just become Substack subscribers. <laughs> or that. Right. But That's actually, another... I'm going to have to set up my own sub Substack. Right, because there's always the danger that I could somehow get some of that money. And, yeah, well, and we have I... to make it 70-30 me, I think. Yeah, at least. At least. Right. Uh, yeah. And if you don't like that split, just give more so that Matt, if you feel like Matt is if getting I don't the like shaft, that split, you know what I can do? I, like, I can go like back in time and repair all the sexism and racism that, that brought us to this moment. Yeah. And until I'm going to be able to do that, I think I just 70 30 is, is about the fair much split. Yeah. Ask for. So, oh my God, plus the Jewish thing. The Jewish thing. I'm giving thing. you a discount. I'm giving you a break with the 70 30. Yeah. It should be 80 20, but I'm not that kind of person. I'm not actually, yeah, I don't know how much, you know, my, my people's had to do with oh, the Jewish question, but... Uh, the yeah. Jewish question? Really, Matt? Yeah, it's okay, it's, it's a Marx term. It's not a it? Hitler term. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, like, I think I settled on a good final solution. Right, Chris. Well, that's what we're all looking for in life is a final solution, right? Come on, that, that deserves a real Hitler appreciation laugh. Right, right. Someone's going to edit this. It'll be what was Hitler's laugh like? I don't, I don't even know. Oh, no, is I meant, good... ha, ha, ha. 
good joke about Hitler and the Jews in Final Solution right. laugh. Right. I wonder yes. what his laugh was like. Do you think he guffawed, or you think it was more of a like a, you know, one of those sort of wheezing type of laughs? I bet it was like you know, like the Eddie Murphy laugh. Oh, the yeah, it's like a donkey laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think it was like that, or do you think it was like a? I laugh too hard, right? So do you think it's? Oh, it's so great though. No, I think he was like me. He was like you know. I often will say in a really annoying way. I'm like, oh, that that's funny. That's funny. And I don't right. laugh, but I think it's funny. But when I lose it, I really laugh hard. I feel like that was Hitler. Right, like he didn't laugh often, but when he but did, when he, he did, really, he really, he really let go. You know who had a good sense of humor was Stalin. Stalin had oh, a really did he? good sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. What's that the... joke about sneezing? Someone sneezing? I, I don't know. Which... Okay, it's like a crowded room of. Uh, Stalin, like Stalin's addressing a big audience, it makes him sound like a stand-up. He's addressing the whatever Soviet Parliament or right, Soviet right. The whatever Fifth Presidium or something like yeah. that. Yeah, the People's Congress. And, yes, and um, someone sneezes, and he goes, "Was that any of you in the front row?" And no one raises their hand, and so he shoots the whole front row, or he has them shot. Naturally. Keeps going until the end. This is a joke, and then there's no, there's no one left but one person in the very back row, and he goes. God bless you. <laughs> or Gesundheit or whatever you'd say. I like it. No. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. very good. Uh, well, we could do a whole segment on, yeah. on the, 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 the excellent senses of humor of dictators uh, sometime in the future. But we should move on to yes. the uh, segments of the show. There's a lot to get to this week. Um, and also, someone suggested that for people just joining us, that we reground people in what the origin story of the four food groups is, which is your... Yeah. Sure. So the four food groups are basically one. Once upon a time, I, I knew a television producer who told me that the four food groups are of news uh, were Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Um, isn't that terrible? Isn't, and, and isn't that weird? Basically, every news story fit into one of those four categories. Once upon a time, it's a it's a little bit narrower now. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and he was he was the the, the point was that. A lot of what TV was about at the time was you were you were going for this effect of hey isn't that weird when when people right. watched um, you know the you know the broadcast so we just sort of run through we had, we we're consciously trying to fill all those gaps in the show and we start off with uh, Democrats suck then Republicans suck then uh, isn't that terrible and isn't that weird uh, so for Democrats suck this week we have a, a story by an old friend. Alex Perrine. Let's get him on the uh, show. Yeah, we should get him on the show sometime. Um, uh, I co-hosted a podcast with him once upon a time, and we had a, an absolutely horrible experience working uh, at First Look Media together uh, that I'm sure both of us would, would rather forget. But very funny guy, and he wrote a very, uh, a very good article in The New Republic. Most of the world has a simple vaccine request. America isn't listening. So it's talking about how... Um, Basically, the United States is producing a lot of vaccines, but unlike the other great powers of the world or the superpowers, Russia and China, we're not doing a whole lot to distribute any of our excess doses to anybody else. And uh, the, this Perrine article in the New Republic, I'm just going to read from it. Um, he's describing a Washington Post article about this issue, and he says, but the Post describes such considerations as mere political calculations for Biden. 
balancing on the one hand an American public that might be upset at seeing, quote, our doses sent overseas or south of the border versus the government's interest in countering Russian and Chinese vaccine diplomacy, which, as usual for the American press, is treated as inherently nefarious because of the countries doing it. Uh, then he quotes, the United States authoritarian adversaries, the Post, adversaries, the Post says, have the field mostly free for the moment to send vaccines to nations from Mexico to Lebanon to Uzbekistan. Their actions have, quote, sparked a debate within the administration about how to balance national security, humanitarian needs, and political concerns. And you can see how they kind of, as an afterthought, wedge humanitarian needs in there. Because really the calculation, what's interesting about this story is that the entire calculation is we would hoard all of the, the vaccine for ourselves except for the optics of allowing uh, China and Russia to look like the savior of the rest of the world. Right, uh, of developing nations, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. So this is like, and of, of course, when you dig deeper into this, and Alex gets into this, um, what it comes down to is that we're much more worried about protecting patent rights than, um, and making sure that the, you know, the profit arrangements uh, or the revenue arrangements for the, for the various companies that produce our vaccines are protected um, than we are about getting these vaccines out the door. Even in this you know, unique once in a gazillion situation, right. they, they have to worry about the precedent there. Uh, so it, it's, it's classic, like just crappy American uh, attitudes towards the, re the rest of the world, especially in a moment when you know, all eyeballs are on us. Trump is out, the world is in crisis. They're looking to us. The one thing that we do have a lot of is money and vaccine and we don't wanna share. So. That, that's a pretty good Democrat suck, I would say. It's that's, such a good Democrat suck. It's, it's like that's, that's up there. It's, it's not even there. like a little petty thing. Like oh no you know, no no, putting, it's like literally hand in at the OMB. Oh, no. it, this is this is this is bad. Yeah, um, this is like um, letting people die for profit, bad, and also like being bad on this stuff. When I thought the Dems were supposed to be the humanitarians compared to Trump, and we're supposed to have empathy. And Perrine's article, by the way, most of the world has a simple vaccine request. America isn't listening. Nations across the world are demanding the right to manufacture their own COVID-19 vaccine. Why is the U.S. saying no? And again, what's really interesting is that they're asking, they're just asking to be able to make their own. Begging the, yeah, they're asking for the, the WTO to temporarily waive patent protection for the vaccines. Can't have that. Yeah. So they Can't can produce it. their own. Right. It's just, it's absurd. And like, like Perrine said, it's so important and so disturbing that the whole conversation that this is one of those meta stories where it's like the Democrats suck and the Democrat me aligned media, whatever you call it, like the blue media, like the Washington Post, their framing is so disgusting. Oh, of course, because they, they leave out all the under, underlying issues. Yeah. You know? And they yeah, just make it about like Cold War, kind of like a new Cold War race. And it's also such a great example of how short-sighted it is because like you want people to be immune in other countries because people move around. They do. And then sometimes they even occasionally come to the United States. Well, yeah, uh, right. Bl believe like, it or not. Shout out to Big Surprise. Actually, I haven't mentioned him in a couple of episodes, Bernie. He made a video statement in support of waiving the patents. Uh, ideological warfare or vaccine diplomacy is what they're calling it, which is interesting. And like, wow, that's a great, I would love for the, for nations to have a, have like a cold war over vaccinating 
um, or, or, you know, waiving patent rights. Wouldn't that be great? It like instead of great. nuclear conflict or nuclear war, it's a vaccine war. Yeah. Who can get the vac? Who can waive patents faster in a world? We have to make it into an action film. This is a problem that we have constantly, just with our whole, our whole system of how we develop drugs in this country is is backwards this way. Uh, like a, a classic example was um, remdesivir, which was the first drug that was uh, approved for use in treating um, COVID, right? Uh, right. It's, it was an already existing drug. And the company that made it, uh, Gilead, th there was a, um, a, a group in, uh, in Bangladesh and India that was able to make this drug uh, generically, and they needed just $10 worth of materials to make it. They were able to produce it at, at a cost of $600 per dose. Um, outside the United States, we, we charged everybody $2,300 a dose for this. Inside the United States, we charged $4,500 a dose for it. And even that price uh, was, was criticized as being too low, uh, as being unfair to the company. Uh, so there's just this enormous sort of yawning chasm between how much it actually costs to make drugs uh, and how much we, we charge in, in, in this country. And a lot of it has been obscured in this crisis because it's been agreed that nobody's going to have to pay out of their own pocket for for a vaccine or for any of these uh, medicines. But ultimately, it still comes out of our pocket anyway, because we end up you know, paying for it in taxes and in inflated costs that we just don't see. Uh, so this is just a classic example of it, except the victims are outside the United States. So Right. It's good. It's a global, it's a, you know, uni universalized. I'm an right, internationalist. Yeah. So, yeah. And also just really quickly, I think that these things should always be done, but this is a case where it's just like so blatant and also so clearly in the self-interest of, of the United States. Cause again, this is a communicable disease. So. Right. Right. Anyway, yeah. Unless you just want to set the precedent of, you know, we just like to hoard stuff. Yeah, that's, that's who we, we are. I, I, I can right. almost get back. Hoard America, hoard yeah. America, better. hoard back better. Hoard back well, yeah, better. It, it's hoard back better. And we're going to let pe more people die here, not just there. Let people right. die here, not just there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's not be inequitable. Yeah, exactly. In, in yeah, because yeah, equity is the watchword of this new administration. Right, exactly. So we're yeah. we're going to have equitable dying. There. Let people right. die here, not just there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's not be inequitable. Yeah, exactly. In, in yeah, because yeah, equity is the watchword of this new administration. Right, exactly. So we're yeah. going to have equitable dying. All right, so what do we have for Republicans suck? Okay, so for Republicans suck, there's so much. I mean, I real shout out to all the Republicans, by the way, who are like really feeling bad for undocumented people and their kids. They've developed a great amount of empathy recently. Absolutely. Which um, is really cool to see that they have hearts this late in the game. Mm -hmm. But I, I decided instead of focusing on that, we could focus on Tucker Carlson. But let's just watch, if we could, the video of um, the CNN video. There's a lot to, to unpack here. Some of the senior most members of the military are smacking down a Fox host for saying that pregnant women serving in the armed forces are a, quote, mockery of the U.S. military, end quote. Here's what Tucker Carlson, who has never himself served in uniform, maternity or otherwise, said on his show. So we've got new hairstyles and maternity flight suits. Pregnant women are gonna fight our wars. It's a mockery of the U.S. military. While China's military becomes more masculine as it's assembled the world's largest navy, 
Our military needs to become, as Joe Biden says, more feminine, whatever feminine means anymore, since men and women no longer exist. The bottom line is it's out of control, and the Pentagon's going along with this. Again, this is a mockery of the U.S. military and its core mission, which is winning wars. First of all, like, Tucker Carlson should have just played, th that comes from Biden's, you know, that whole operation there thing, which we really right. need to just have constantly playing in the background <laughs> that, during that, transitions. That yeah. yeah, that outfit. Um, so they showed a picture of a, of a woman that, that Carlson showed in a, in a maternity flight suit. Now, right. they're not going to actually be doing that while that they're, right. they're not. That's for like office. That's for when they're, I, I, if later on in this CNN special, they talk about how, um, it's for wearing around the office when you're pregnant and in the military, not, right. not like random offices. But Or if you're um, going to travel from one place to another while yeah. you're in the military. Right, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming, yeah. Yeah. He's saying it's a mockery and the military is pushing back. And they're both, uh, obviously this is a Republican suck. And obviously I think like Carlson is a such a baby and also his hair kind of moves during that segment in an interesting way we can look at again but he the funny thing is like we make fun of this like the wokery of of the armed forces uh -huh. but we make fun of it because it's so hypocritical it's like woke feminists bombing innocent brown people right whereas he's bothered by it just because he thinks that the army is this should be macho mm -hmm. like for him the army's good for me the army's problematic it's just the opposite like it's i don't know what the I'm doing really, I'm really doing us a favor here because we really want people to be comparing us to uh, Tucker Carlson more than they already are. Right. Yeah. Like that's yeah, not already happening. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that segment it was absurd. It would be one thing if we were talking about a combat suit uh, right. for, for pregnant women, which um, I, I don't think is being envisaged, but, but he's, he's just going for a cheap uh response from people who are going to assume that we're sending women pregnant women into combat right. which i'm pretty sure that that's not it, how that's would that work i i don't know i don't know i mean it, it, look it's it's a it's a preposterous segment and he, it kind of makes he, he, he knows exactly what he's doing I think I think the way to handle that is just to ignore it. And I kind of think so, too. Although, you know, John Oliver had a really good segment on it and mentioned the fact that a lot of these things were done under Trump. Like right. the the pregnancy suits, but there is something there. I feel like we could develop about pregnant. Um, what do you call when you jump out of a plane? Paratroopers. Not yeah, paratroopers. I'm not... It's kind of like extra insulate. It's like it's a it's actually kind of maybe a good idea. Maybe, yeah. Like a bumper car. It's like a bumper car, a bumper right. human. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not. It would depend on how pregnant you are. I, think. I guess. I think you probably wouldn't want to do it in your eighth month. I would imagine. But that, that gives you that much more padding. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I guess so. I feel like yeah. this conversation is headed places where I, there's nothing I all can right, say yeah. that could possibly uh, redeem you. Yeah, redeem exactly. Us. Yeah. Okay, we can exactly. drop it. I'm all for. I'm all for. Um, as many pregnant women as possible getting uh, being involved in dropping out of planes. Yeah, in, in the in the most deadly forms of combat. Yeah. So. Right. Um, as I am, I'm generally in favor of anybody. Uh, you know, young children. Yeah. Um, you know, I think everybody should be in combat and fully armed always. So. Um, okay. So, uh, for isn't that weird? Lots of really interesting stories about severe 
scholastic overreactions to haircuts. This is a good one. Uh, that, so the headline is, School puts boy in isolation on first day back for his two-tone lockdown hair. Um, and I'm just going to read from it. A student was placed in isolation in his first day back in school due to his two-tone hairstyle as he was unable to go to a hairdresser. This is in England, obviously. Uh, Jacob Lee Stokes received the punishment on the day he was meant to be reunited with his classmates following months of lockdown. The 15-year-old's hair broke school rules after he had dyed it blue and pink experimenting. Uh, before washing it out and dyeing his naturally ginger hair blonde, Grimsby Live reported. He had been un unable to get the color fixed by a professional before restarting at Humbertson Academy, Humbertson in Lincolnshire. A statement from the school, which insisted it is, quote, empathetic, said pupils were expected to, quote, take appropriate steps, having known about the start date for two weeks. And just to scroll down a little bit more. Uh, this is despite hairdressers and barbers being closed under coronavirus restrictions, mum, Jenna Leaning said that when she told the school she had no option and that she only owned a pair of dog clippers herself, the response was a recommendation to, quote, shave it off. She told Grimsby Live, Jacob is naturally ginger and it won't take to try to dye it one color. There are loads of students with dyed hair. But, I mean, he's a, he, he looks like a, I mean, um, yeah. like a kid from a band in the 80s. Yeah, right? he, he kind of looks like a kid who's, like, dressed up as Trump or something. I can't or Baron or something. He kind of looks like Baron, but he looks like he's wearing. He does look like he's wearing a wig. Um, um, can you? He just looks kind of like Tilda Swinton. Yeah, he does look like Tilda Swinton. Um, with like both yellow and orange. Hair. Orange, yeah. It's really it's interesting how much the two tone is offensive. I mean, there are people who have like, I guess I couldn't like I have highlights. It's not one t monotone, so I wonder if I'd be able to go into that school. Probably not. But anyway, his hair is too long and it's 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 two colors, which I guess for some reason at that school is unacceptable. So let's go to the next story, which boy 13 ordered into school isolation on his first day back over, quote, extreme haircut. Uh, Leland Haig, 13, was ordered into isolation by Exmouth Community College in Devon. A teenager eager to finally see his classmates again after a year in lockdown was ordered into isolation on his very first day back at school because of his, quote, extreme haircut. Uh, Leland Haig, 13, returned as a year nine pupil in Exmouth Community College in Devon on March 9th after months of not being able to go to class. Uh, so basic, basically, uh, his mother uh, didn't have the proper tools to, to cut his hair, so she just kind of shaved it around the edges and left it really short on top. But the funny part of the story, if we could scroll down even further, uh, on his first day back, he said he had no break times, no lunchtime, and he had to stay in the room all day because of his haircut. They got his lunch from the canteen for him as he wasn't allowed to leave the room. When he wanted to go to the toilet, he was told he would have to wait until everyone was in class so they would not see his haircut that is deemed unsuitable for school. <laughs> so they, what the hell? they had to like sneak this kid uh to and from the bathroom so that no one would be stained by the the sin of seeing his too short haircut uh so he had he had to be he had to be uh taken to secret secret peeing trips uh during class times so so that happened and then we have one last story that's basically in the same uh uh, Mumslam school is as teen put in isolation as new rules ban ear studs that can't be removed until shops open. 
A furious mum has lashed out at her after her daughter was put in isolation at school because her earrings were against new rules but can't be removed until shops reopen. Charlotte Robertshaw claims her daughter Eloise, 15, has been failed by her school after being told she'll have to spend six hours each day on her own and even eat alone. Uh, and then scroll down. Uh, her daughter, who is a year 10 pupil at Trinity Academy in Bradford, West Yorks, has worn ear studs for two years without an issue as it was allowed, but new rules which were enforced in February after a different trust took over the school forbid any jewelry from being worn. The single mum of two said the school was being unreasonable as they will have to wait at least a month to remove the studs once piercing shops are open again. Uh, Eloise was told last Tuesday that she would spend her time in detention until she had them removed, but has since been told she would spend just six hours on isolation instead. Um, so these are three separate stories of people just being completely like insane about kids' hair. Uh, it's insane. Like she, they already have isolation. I don't understand why they think it's like that. They think that kids haven't gone through enough or something. Yeah, it, feel, it feels like, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, there should be like just the let it slide clause and yeah. some, some of these rules, you know? I, I mean, know. and just maybe like the, the safety should be, be the priority as opposed to like, um, I was going to say decorum, but it's not even decorum. That's, you know, literally as opposed to hairstyles and earrings. Um, but, you know, I think that there, it's a bit problematic, by the way. There's like a lack of solidarity because someone if we go back to their three stories right there's the like shaved head there's the two-tone and then there's the earrings mm -hmm. and shaved head mom i feel like she's kind of buying into the respectability politics of it um because she says i could understand if his hair had markings or things cut into it or had been colored but he's just literally had a haircut at home which does not affect his learning so well, I mean, if he shaved like an erect wiener in the side yeah. of his head, like then I, we'd know, have I, him on the I, show, I, probably. But yes, <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, exactly. You notice anything about the kid? Earring? Yeah. Where, why is that not part of the conversation? I feel like they, that's a that that should have been that could have been discussed before the hair thing because that's a black and white case of terrible of a terrible rule, but it's very straightforward. Hmm. What, where's the excuse for that? He could remove the earring. See, yeah, the got, other one can't. On you got nothing. I, I, okay. I'm yeah. just revealing how arbitrary it is. Yeah, I, it, it, it's a strange thing. I think I think that's actually just as interesting as a new genre of news stories. So if anybody right. out there sees more stories about people in the COVID era not being able to go to school or not being able to do anything because right. of their haircut or something like that, uh, <laughs> we'd, we'd be interested in seeing the whole variety of the full spectrum yeah. of that kind of weird story. So what do we have for Isn't That Terrible? So for Isn't That Terrible, we have a, a really upsetting, but kind of interesting, philosophically speaking, story, um, also from the, from the Mirror, and it's um, Heartless Thieves con blind pensioner with fake ambulance as his wife lay dying. Stephen Morris, 45, and Kelly Cassidy, 42, carried out the burglary after Ronald Crowther, 87, rushed into the street to seek help when his wife Dorothy fell gravely ill in the night. This is really sad. Okay, so... Um, Basically what happened is that um, heartbreaking CCTV footage captured these thieves entering the home um, and, and was shared by the couple's family in an appeal for information because uh, they this couple followed Mr. Crowther, who is blind, into his home on the pretense they would phone an ambulance because his wife was, was 
would ultimately die. So she lay dying. Um, he thought, so this guy thought that the thieves were helping him by ringing for an ambulance. Okay. And then he went upstairs to be with his wife and she had suffered an aneurysm and would die in her bed that night. But instead of calling for an ambulance, the culprits helped themselves to cash and an iPhone from Dorothy's handbag that had been left on a table downstairs before fleeing the house in Breerfield, Lanks, Lancaster, I guess, Lancashire. Uh, after leaving, the pair were seen on camera wiping fingerprints from the door handle before running off. And before the theft, the duo had tried all door, all front door handles of houses on the street during the incident at about 3 a.m. Um, detectives investigating the case arrested Cassidy and Morris two days later and charged them with burglary. Morris was sentenced to four years and three months, and Cassidy was jailed for two and a half years. Um, and it looks like it couldn't have, could not have happened to a nicer couple. Um, That's a flattering mugshot. Yeah. Yeah, really good. Yeah. So this this usually this segment of the show of the show is a funny story that just happens to be terrible. Right. But this is just a terrible story. I mean, it's a good challenge for us to find the funny in that. Right. Yeah. But what I will say is that well, this is robbing yeah. blind people is always funny. Right. It's just not we just it's too <laughs> robbing blind people is always funny, but when combined with death, here, here's my real issue with this, ready? I think this is an important philosophical issue. Um, it would, if they had called for the ambulance and then robbed them blind, didn't even plan that by the way, if they had called for the ambulance and then robbed them blind, that would be okay. But I, but because they didn't, you know, I don't believe in felony murder and I think Shahid Buttar and I convinced you not to either, but this is a case where I do feel like maybe they should be tried for manslaughter. And convicted of manslaughter. This probably Reckless would endangerment. be fel felony murder, I think. This makes me want to believe. Well, I don't know if they do that in England. I think they're not quite they probably, as bar barbaric as we are on that same, front. The same yeah. concept, but yeah, it should be. Yeah, if they didn't, if there was no death involved, if it was just a straightforward case of robbing the blind, robbing the blind, blind. Right. Then we'd all be we'd just be chuckling about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, again, as you said, it's a challenge. So, so can we laugh at robbing? dead blind people well they're not dead at the oh robbing live okay this the challenge is just syntactically can we laugh at robbing living blind people dead and in the process killing a seeing person right yeah she was exactly. not blind right or she were they blind, blind couple? right yeah yeah exactly what so if she kinda... saw it what if she saw it happening but couldn't communicate because the aneurysm that would have been terrible Right. Then there's a whole mess of stuff going on. He can't see. She can't speak. <laughs> that, that is kind of funny. <laughs> there we got. We got there. Already. I mean, it's yeah. a defense lawyer's dream, right? Yes. Right. Like, why well, one witness who couldn't see, another witness who's dead, and even if she wasn't dead, she wouldn't be able to say anything. Oh, it's their defense lawyer. You see, I'm actually. Oh yeah, you're. Yeah, you're right. Except I'm going to play the prosecutor role, and like, in addition to, in wait, they're not really talking usually, right? In addition to stealing from them, she had to <laughs> she had to spend her final hours seeing a theft she could not. Oh, I see. That, yeah, there, there's place. that whole tragedy aspect of it, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's watching it and she can't do anything can't, about it. Yeah, but and probably then he, even more yeah. disturbing, she's dying actually. Right. Well, that's. Yeah. I know you don't want to have to have both of those things happening at the same time. Right. Let her die in peace without being fleeced. Oh, my God, where does this come from? So good, yeah, my yeah, my rock, poet, yeah. You didn't even know it. I didn't even yeah. know it. Yeah. yeah. What if 
Oh god, now this is I think is we're really... actually just bad people uh trying to find the humor in this story. I want our uh, maybe our, we should do stuff like this all the time so our haters have to discuss these things and not get right. to anything else. Like this will be the low-hanging fruit. Right. Right. Making jokes about robbing dead people. Robbing dead seeing people and robbing living people blind. People blind. Yeah. All right, so what's our ruling on this? Is this funny or not? Is this too, is your leg here up or, or down on this? I mean, uh, this is the honestly, everything we've done until now has been trash. No comedy. This is it. Right. We should just start the episode here. Let's right. just open, cold open, cold, cold open, open with what I just said about okay. robbing people. You know, we just cold open and then we play the whole thing backwards like memento. So Katie, alert. Two, people alert, robbed, two people robbed an old blind man and his wife who died of an aneurysm during the commission of the robbery. That is amazing. <laughs> is that funny? That, that is so funny. And welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm your host, Katie Hopper. <laughs> We have a couple of guests this week yeah. who are going to come on and talk some more media stuff. They're, uh, they're co-hosts of a podcast that I listen to a lot called Blocked and Reported. We're going to kind of have two segments. The first is with Jesse Single, who has kind of been all over the internet in the last couple, last week or so in the middle of a, an insane controversy, which we'll get to. He's also got a new book coming out called The Quick Fix, which is really interesting which yeah. we're going to ask him about first and then he's he's going to bring on his co-host katie herzog so it'll be two katie's a two katie show yeah. uh and they're going to talk about uh, this uh, culture war insanity that's taken over the internet without further ado let's let's talk to uh to jesse so i should admit i had i had no idea I, I've, I've heard you referencing this book and I, I had no idea what it was about um but this is this is a book that's uh of one of my favorite genres of nonfiction book, which is the debunking book. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's really cool. Basically, you go through a whole series of um, episodes of kind of psychological fads uh, that were later exposed or you're exposing as being less than advertised. And so it's interesting, both from a media perspective and from a science perspective. But uh, first, can, can, you, can you talk about how you... Um, chose this topic yeah i um you know i've always been a journalist but i went to grad school for public policy uh 2011 to 2013 graduated had no idea what i was going to do i lucked into a fellowship in berlin which if you're going to go spend a year somewhere you could do worse than berlin um i was sitting in a coffee shop like i knew i wanted to come back to new york trying to figure out what to do i saw new york magazine was starting a social science vertical so I um, I applied and I was the editor of Science of Us, rest in peace. And for uh, for a couple of years at New York Magazine, I was writing and editing pieces about social science. And during the span, uh, social psychology in particular started to sort of like melt down. And there was more and more signs that like a lot of what they were, you know, selling people was just not true. And I sort of did enough of these debunking pieces that it became my thing. So yeah, this sort of became my issue, like debunking shoddy behavioral science. And my, you know, my agent just said, let's try to sell a book about it. And it, it worked out. So there's a whole bunch of episodes in this book. Uh, some are more preposterous than the other. The, the, the first one that jumped out to me was the super predators one. Can you t t talk to the, uh, a little bit about that story? Uh, because 
this is something that was like it was all over pop culture for a while like in the what late late 90s early 2000s is that is that when this became big yeah mid i'd say mid to late 90s most of all um yeah this is sort of the odd man out in the book because it's not really a story about social psychologists per se but this is a psychological theory um Okay, so mid-90s, there's this this scary rise in youth crime. There's actually a lot of crime in America. There had been a rise for decades. And this guy named John DeUlio, who's a political scientist at Pennsylvania, he posits that um, kids are becoming super predators. They grow up in these negative environments where they don't have role models. They don't have churches. He's very big into churches. And they became these sort of amoral killing machines who don't understand the future they have no restraint of their impulses. He, he did the colorblind thing, but he was clearly talking about black kids because that was the focus of this crime panic was black kids, right. particularly the idea of black kids killing white people, which, you know, didn't happen as much. And, you know, if you're if you're a, a student of sort of criminal justice reform, this was a time when all these really bad laws were being passed that let you try kids as adults at younger and younger ages, making it harder to expunge criminal records. And part of the reason those laws picked up steam was because people believed in this like behavioral science idea that there are all these super predators. And not only that, that because of demographics, like more and more uh, kids of boomers becoming teenagers, there's going to be even more super predators. So DeUlio and his colleagues, like he, they thought that by the year 2000, the whole country was going to be like a freaking war zone. Um, but they were wrong about everything. And, and to me, the most important thing they were wrong about was the idea that um, – you know, imagine a 14-year-old caught up in the crack trade who kills a rival on a street corner. That's horrible, and it's tragic. That doesn't mean he's like an inhuman killing machine. It means when you put people in ridiculously horrible circumstances, they do bad things, which you know, it's like when you use the example of a child soldier in Africa, people can understand that. Right. But for some reason, with like kids and drug gangs, there's less empathy for some reason. So, you know, this idea did a lot of damage because it really made people dehumanize kids who were themselves, even as they were victimizing others, they were victims. And it's it's an idea of how the, an idea that has like no actual scientific evidence behind it can spread far and wide on the wings of, of fear in this case. Right, and not only that, crime plummeted, as you point out in the book after that, right? And, that, yeah. and there, again, <laughs> right. there's not... There isn't a great um, explanation for why that happened, like not one that anybody ag ag agrees upon, but he was definitely wrong about that. What about his, his prediction that it would soar, right? Yeah, it, I think it's more there are almost too many explanations. Like part of it is just as the crack trade uh, broke up, there was less crime. Right. But yeah, he he could not have been more wrong about that. And not only him, but, you know, these these James Q. Wilson, who's sort of a legendary. Broken windows. Broken windows, right? Yeah, yeah. broken windows. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and of course, they, people may be familiar with that term. People who are younger may be familiar with that term, thanks to Hillary Clinton invoking it and you know speaking of uh tough on crime and dehumanizing um criminal justice we were talking about that earlier talking about the president of course joe biden who had a who bragged that there was no major minor crime bill that didn't have his name on it but before we go into the other really interesting parts of chapters and focus foci of the book can you talk about the iat I bet a lot of your listeners are familiar with the basics, but this is a test they'll give you during diversity training. For me, I think my test is real because it said I'm slightly biased against white people. <laughs> oh, uh, really? So, so that must be true. I'm scientifically not racist. So so this is a test where you, um, anyone can take it. You can take it. Just don't trust the results. You hit I if you see a black face or a bad word. E if you hit a white face, see a white face or a good word, and they switch that. 
algorithm, numerical magic, it spits out a score that is presumably how biased you are against certain groups. Jesse, why don't you put that in your bio, like up top? So your critics have to be like a bias towards white person, according to the IAT test, Jesse right. Single. Je Jesse Single is a former staffer at New York Magazine who received a negative score on the black-white IAT. There you go. I, I like the sound yeah. of that. It was introduced in 1998. It has revolutionized our discussion of racism in America. The idea is that, and this was the argument of the creators of the test, like even though people aren't explicitly racist anymore, and I think survey-wise, there's pretty good evidence that explicit racism has gone down, though there's still some of it. We're all carrying around this implicit racism, and that's why racist outcomes persist. What I argue in the book is that, A, every investigation of a major police department that kills people reveals plenty of explicit bias. It's not like that's absent. B, there are there there is such a thing as structural racism. And even though there isn't legal segregation today, it still exists. So my gripe is the IAT pretends that racist outcomes emerge because we're all secretly individually biased, which... You know, if you if you follow, I'm not an expert on sort of race theory and the sociology of this, but this is like specifically what people were saying they we shouldn't believe not too long ago. Like the whole like Michelle Alexander, Eduardo Bonilla Silver thing is like you don't really it's racism without racist. You don't need individually racist people to generate racist outcomes. Right. Um, but because of this test, which it turns out barely predicts anything and is almost statistically worthless. All we talk about now is implicit bias. Right. Which also yeah. means what are the solu the solutions are not structural. I mean I, I mean that's why I think company like people like this stuff because right. you can if the answer is we need to take money that's going to rich kids schools and put it in poor kids kids school, people don't like that. If the answer is you know, you need to reduce white people's implicit bias, okay, I'll take right. a 5 minute to fuck it. Right. And and when you talk about it being uh, statistically worthless, you you give a lot of examples like the test retest score can you talk a little bit about some of the things that were subsequently found out or at least argued by its critics yeah um worthless is too strong a word but it is not the if you take the iat and then you take it again in a few hours or a day you will get likely a very different score the whole argument from the beginning of the test inception was this uh test predicts how likely you are to be racist which is like that would be incredible. That's like right. fortune telling. If a little 10 minute computer exercise predicts your real world behavior, there's almost no evidence it predicts anything. There's like a tiny correlation between people's IAT scores and how they act in sort of laboratory settings. But it's so small that the creator, the test creators themselves have said you should not use this to diagnose individuals. So it's unclear what is being revealed when you take this test or exactly what it's measuring, which calls into question why the whole psychological establishment promotes it so much because if you had a test that supposedly measures anxiety or depression or anything other than racism and it was this statistically noisy i think you'd have a strong argument it's unethical to sort of tell people their score it's just been sort of incredibly overhyped and remarkably one of the big morning shows just like two weeks ago in the year of our lord 2021 did yet another segment that ignored all the criticisms of it and just treated it as true so i it's sort of a zombie idea that won't die it could mean something Right. I mean, it's 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 possible. But I, when you take the test, it also seems clear that it would probably work if you inserted all kinds of variables in there. Right. Like if you had That's one of the things they did, they the, made up a fake group of people. Right. Nafians, non-existent yeah. ethnic group. Mm -hmm. And they got they actually that I identify were... that. That's my that's how I identify. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're Nafian adjacent. I'm Nafian adjacent. Exactly. Yeah. No, they, they proved that this group of, uh, I guess, college kids was uh, racist against Nafians, as proven by their IAT score. So 
Yeah, I think it measures. I think part of what it measures is something that could be called implicit bias, but it also measures so many other things. Plus, with different people, it could be measuring different things. The brain is really complicated. The idea that you can take a ten-minute test right. and then, like reveal something sturdy about it is is unlikely. But is it because you're like you said it changes? So maybe it's like I'm in a racist mood right now. I'm in a less you racist seem, mood. I was going to say, it seems like you're in a very racist yeah. mood at the moment. You seem a little racist uh, yeah, right now. Why don't you take a walk, do some exercise? <laughs> giving off the it's aura. Like, it's, like arth- it's like arthritis or chronic Right, it's inflamed. Racism is acting yeah, exactly. It's going to rain tomorrow, right, right. so my racism is Yeah, flaring. exactly. Yeah. But how much of this is also, I mean, it, it feel, I hate this word because it's so overused now, but it feels like a little bit of an academic grift in a lot of these cases, right? Like it's, what does that really measure exactly, right? Like is it, it, it feels like it just, it's describing less about the person who's taking the, the test than it is about the, the the person who's designing the test right like they're they're basically telling yeah. you how they how they're interpreting data yeah no that i mean that's exactly the right question because there's this concept in in uh psychology of external validity so uh, i give you i do an experiment i measure you somehow how much does that measurement correlate to anything we care about in the real world and the answer is often these lab experiments don't really mean anything but because of like the incentives of getting a book deal or, or doing a TED talk researchers, I don't think they're intentionally grifting, but like imagine either of you guys, if someone was like, we'll give you, actually, I don't think TED talk people get paid, but they get huge just premiums to their yeah. reputation. Um, you know, there's, there's shitty incentives. So I think most of the scientists in my book are not grifters per se, but there's this like media and institutional thing that just really incentivizes them to overclaim. So what's the media's role in all this? Because that feels like it has to be massive in almost all of these cases, right? Every, every one of these ideas, I'd say, except for one that wasn't as famous, any of them, you Google them, New York Times, NPR, NBC, just glowing pieces about this revolutionary new idea. Very little quoting of skeptics. Skeptics often get sort of yelled down one way or another. I, you know, I, I was at New York Magazine and we would get these uh, press releases from universities that were like, it's always like something very sexy and counterintuitive. Like, oh, did you know right. that if you ask someone who's greedy to draw a face, it'll be frownier? Just like bullshit. Like that's a made up example, <laughs> yeah. but that kind of like, oh my God, that's crazy. And oftentimes these studies uh, were were useless. And, and we've since learned that there's this big thing called the replication crisis where if you take a study from psychology at random and you try to run it back and get the same result, something like half the time you just won't. They're just, they were uh, ghosts in the noise or whatever the, the term is. Like there are so many bad methodological tools that you can, you can find anything. Also, Hillary Clinton, I want to just bring up, I just remember brought up the IAT also, right? Uh, did she bring it up by name or just implicit bias in her first debate with Trump? I bet any any politician has to mention implicit bias at this point because yeah. it's such a meme. Can, can you talk about the power posing, the grit? Can we go through some of the other things you take, you yeah. uh, debunk? And I should say, like a lot of these cases, there were already like good researchers who'd done some of the debunking. The point of the book is not just to debunk them, but to explain what cultural niche they filled. Power posing is this, is this idea that if you stand in like a, you know, arms out, yeah. assertive pose, it'll make you feel more powerful at work. And th- Matt, we go. should do that uh, when we do our show. Yeah. That's Power right. Yeah. We should, we should do that before every show. So the claim there by a woman named Amy Cuddy, who was at Harvard, is that this could improve workplace gender equity. And this got very much tied in with the Sheryl Sandberg lean in thing, which was this whole subset of feminism. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of people remember this, but the whole this whole ideology was centered around individual women need to act different. Right. They need to act more confident or seek out more responsibility at work. And for all these ideas, there's like an element of common sense. Like, yeah, you should seek opportunity. You should try to be confident. 
when you try to like look into the reasons why women don't have the same opportunities as men in the workplace, that's not really about confidence or feeling powerful. It's that societal roles and expectations. Right. It's the way men have old boys networks that help support them. So my gripe with all these ideas is they take some like sexy little slice of the world and like zoom in on it. Like, ooh, power will make women feel more powerful. That's not really much of what's going on. And it's similar with grit, which is in theory a way to measure how much someone will sort of stick to tasks and feel passionate and be conscientious. I scored in the 10th percentile on grit, which makes sense because I was like a shitty student. This was presented again as a way of dealing yeah. with educational inequality. I, but yeah, like, I got the 30th percentile on the test. There we go. Yeah. But this is another example where like, think of the difference between uh, the schools I got to go to growing up and the schools in the poorest part of Boston with just you know, frankly, worse teachers, worse facilities, worse opportunity, living in neighborhoods without good jobs. To say that one of the re the main reason for the inequality or a major reason is those kids don't have enough grit is like, it's sort of maddening. And I, I actually quote at length from a book called um, When Grit Is Not Enough by a woman who ran a, I can't remember if it was a charter school or a test school in Boston. She has all these stories of kids who worked much harder than I did. And they got all the way to college. And then suddenly there was some student fee they couldn't pay or some tuition bill they couldn't pay. And that's it. Not enough grit. But these, yeah, exactly. These so are the it, kind of stories. Sort of they're, the, they're the kind of stories that editors in big urban newspapers love or to your local yeah. local TV stations love. Because what does the you know, your highest income based viewer what do they like to hear? And, you know, they, they don't want to hear that they, they've designed society in a way yeah. that is inherently unfair and that they're the, un, they're the lucky beneficiaries of that. They want to hear that, you know, there's some quick fix solution that can, yeah. you know, all, all you have to do is do power posing or give people more grit or whatever it is. Well, yeah, or, or check your privilege or do a Robin D'Angelo yeah, trade right. or some sort of spiritual quest to, to find the source of your bias. It's never like integrate your neighborhood yeah like right. support policies that will i mean yeah that's that's my my main gripe. yeah here. we often see people like use this language of empowerment and anti-racism to avoid looking at these things that we could do that are structural yeah. i also think like you know the author of of grit angela duckworth she is very successful academic i don't she's been more honest than many others about the limitations of her ideas you read her book it's story after story of someone who was downtrodden, then they worked hard, right. and now they're the CEO of whatever. But it's like, it's no shit. You're Angela Duckworth. You're a UPenn professor. Everyone in your social network so, right. is successful. Yeah. It's what we call, yeah, or survivor bias. Survivor bias um, right. I just, I think the more honest way to do that is like, why don't you also walk around Brownsville or whatever the Brownsville equivalent of, of, of Philadelphia is and talk to people there? Do you think they didn't work hard? Do you think they lacked grit? There's something I find very one-sided yeah. about the whole discourse. So what's nudging? Nudging Is it nudging is or one... nudging? <laughs> it's nudging if you're Jewish. Jewish yeah. So, so Matt, don't uh, say nudging because that's uh, appropriation. Right, yeah, right, we'll say yeah, nudging. You say nudging, yeah. Nudging is one of the ideas that has some merit behind it, but like is also overhyped. It's basically uh, people are not very rational in their decision-making. Like I, I know this, I eat a lot of shitty food. I walk around New York, I'll pop in, grab a slice of pizza I don't need. Nudging is the idea if, the, if you like add extra obstacles or if you, it's called choice architecture. You frame the way people make their choices in different ways. So uh, cafeteria, you put the desserts in the back, you put the fruits up front. There's evidence that that has some effect on people's behavior. And I'm like, I'm in favor of like defaulting to double-sided printing to save paper. And and Cass Sunstein is the godfather of nudging. I don't really have a beef with it, but but I, I 
make this argument and talk about other people's arguments that at one point Cass Sunstein talking about the mortgage crisis. He focuses on the clarity of the contracts and the pe- the fact that people signed contracts with ridiculous terms. What I think sometimes gets um, obscured here is like, why are we allowing people to sign on to ridiculously exploitative mortgages? And when you focus too much on like these individual nitpicky things like, oh, I, you know, let's make the contract language bigger so you don't need a microscope to read it, stuff like that. You can agree that, you know, that's fine. They should have done that for Native Americans. If they had like a bigger font, (laughs) they would have fared a lot better with the treaties. Yeah, exactly. But it's the same thing. You're sort of obscuring the power relations, the role of big finance. And um, I'm pro-nudging. I'm against making nudge like a whole ideology about, you know, how to fix the world. Or in place of something else, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did you talk to any scientists who were just dismissive in an angry way of this whole culture of it's because it's it's it's, it feels like it's it's an admixture of academia and media and pop culture that to a real scientist probably must be offensive and obnoxious uh were there were there people who were contemptuous of all these ideas yeah there's there's this sort of subculture of debunky scientists what's weird the incentives are so screwed up that if you're the guy who carefully goes through someone else's work and debunks it you're much less likely to have a good career than if you're the person who overclaims. So it, it the incentives are really off. The other interesting thing is that whole Bernie bro thing where people who like Bernie are, are seen as harassers. There's a version of that going on in what's called the open science movement. You have these incumbents, these like powerful social psychologists who are tenured, who often spread misleading ideas. Then you have young untenured grad students and young faculty who do blog posts being like, this person's full of shit statistically. And the incumbents go, that's harassment right. to call me full of shit. Yeah. How could you do that? And there, one of them even used the term methodological terrorism oh to describe the people uh, debunking her work. So it's the same thing where it's like it, these um, civility arguments are often used yes. as a way to derail real conversation. It's like we talk a lot about identity politics, but then there's also civility politics, which can yeah. often go hand in hand, but are just a way we've seen it done to like totally stifle any debate, any questioning. I mean, going back to the whole Nier Tandon, Matt Brunick thing, that whole thing was a fight about welfare reform and Nier's role in it. And because of a couple of people that was no longer, I mean, the, the fact that Matt Brunick was then removed from the think tank Demos to me is like such a great example of how civility politics have an outcome in policy. Right, because you remove someone who has these certain ideas from a think tank. They're like removed from the decision-making process. Well, the other thing is like, especially when everyone's on Twitter, any opinion you hold, you can find opponents who are actually kind of assholes and you can focus on them and use them to sort of denigrate the whole movement. It's like a cheap game at the, like what is is a political position on Twitter where there aren't idiots screaming? I mean, it's just, yeah, it's endemic. So it's it's an easy way to get out of like an actual conversation. Yeah. If people want to support my work, they should check out the book and consider ordering it. For a first-time author, early sales make a huge difference, and and a rel- like surprisingly small number makes a huge difference. But there's a lot of stuff in this book. There's a whole five hundred million dollar plus anti PTSD program the military set up that was just like a crazy scandal. There's other chapters, so uh, I yeah I I hope people will look into it. Is one of the problems with with all this that there's no there's there's probably not a lot of upside for a scientist to take on an established theory uh, or something that's popular and or selling a lot of books probably not going to 
when you grants or book deals or anything like that. I think so. I think that's changing a little bit, but yes. Um, I mean, I know from trying to sell a book on this, one of a publisher's concerns will be like, this book is too negative and too debunky. Within the culture of psychology, this is changing. Like, it didn't used to be considered normal or like polite to attempt to replicate a study or to ask for someone's data, which is a way of checking, you know, that they, they were careful with it. Uh, that is changing. Especially toward the end of my book, I talk about the way psychology is starting to reform itself. And I, I think the studies that get released, you know, 10 years from now will be a lot more trustworthy than, than the crap we've seen in the recent uh, past. So it's almost like you have to, they feel like you're nudging them if you uh, ask them <laughs> to a question. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, this was so great and really excited to read your book. Um, but really, we invite you here. Uh, you were bait because uh, we really would just want to talk to Katie Herzog here co-host understandable uh, yeah. reported. we're, we're, we're looking for the double katie effect yeah exactly what, yeah what, what the kdh on kdh yeah definitely looking forward to your book and now we're going to have uh you and your co-host katie herzog of blocking reported talk about your podcast and uh the recent scandal you're involved in. <laughs> major yeah. major scandal yeah all right uh so we have uh, two, two guests that I'm really excited about uh, to have. Um, they're co-hosts of a, of a podcast that I actually listened to. Yeah, it, Blocked and Reported was the first podcast that wasn't sports that I regularly listened to. Wow. Yeah. So It is the, it is the first ever podcast, so it makes sense. <laughs> the first one. Yeah. Uh, and I really enjoy it. I think the dynamic between both, both of you is great. Uh, so this is um, Jesse Single and Katie Herzog. Uh, they have a co-host of a show called Blocked and Reported, and both of you got more you, Jesse, than than Katie. But but you both got uh, sucked into this insane internet controversy that we want to ask you about uh, in a moment. But I, I I thought it would be good to sort of start with a little bit of background about about what the podcast is, and uh, also first how you how you two came to uh, know each other. I know you've answered that question before, but our our listeners may not know it. Sure, I can take this one. Um, so Jesse and I met when I sent him, um, I, he would probably call this fan mail, I would not call it fan mail, but I sent him an email, I was working on a story uh, for the Stranger Seattle's Alt Weekly where I used to be a staff writer, um, and I had read Jesse's work on, on gender dysphoria and trans issues, and I was really impressed by it because it was different um, than almost everything that I'd read. And, and Jesse seemed incredibly detail-oriented. Um, what I know now is that he's a, he's pedantic by nature and he can't help it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if pedantic is like exactly the right word, but <laughs> fuck you, Katie. That's the, the other Katie H, uh, not to me, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I do get confused for you sometimes. Oh, really? Um, hmm. Yeah. So I, I sent Justin an email asking him to comment uh, on my piece and he refused um, because he wanted all of the glory for himself. Um, but we ended up, uh, we ended up, sort of striking up an email correspondence and then we met in New York a couple months after that I was working or I was there for the heterodox academy uh, a heterodox academy conference um, and we just we sort of struck up a friendship um, I, I tried to have as few cis straight males in my life as possible but I've made an exception for Jack. <laughs> I have to work twice as hard right <laughs> yeah. to become your friend yeah. 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 excellent and so what was the genesis of doing the the podcast together yeah, I think March 20th is the anniversary. Happy anniversary. Kate, happy anniversary. Uh, my ring is in the mail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we it was uh, early days of lockdown, I believe. And we had talked, for, I had had her on this like little baby podcast I did. We had just talked about our respective experiences. And you had taken a buyout from The Stranger, right? I have the timing right? 
It was not a buyout, but yes, I was furloughed from the paper. <laughs> you had taken a $0 buyout <laughs> from The Stranger. Uh, and we were just like, there's a lot of crazy shit going on in journalism right now, a lot of crazy shit on the internet. Why not talk about it and see what happens? And, you know, I don't, I don't, I think we wouldn't have launched it if we didn't think there was a chance it would be successful. But um, we've been surprised, like, how many listeners we've picked up, and we're really grateful about that. Right. So, an, an initial focus of the show was sort of the controversies going on in the media that like that was a lot of what you what you talked about initially right yeah we, yeah. we frame it as just like internet bullshit but internet <laughs> bullshit and media bullshit are right. now like venn diagram circles yeah. <laughs> the same circle and well I'm, I'm by the way i'm very uh i felt a lot of erasure and i was very invisible as i heard your last episode where you talk about bernie bros and you listed some people who are bernie bros not Katie Halper. I didn't make the cut, and I, I tried. Matt had to talk me out of canceling because I was we, not going to. I'm yeah, going to cancel you guys. It was nip as, and tuck. Yeah. As, uh, yeah. That's the problem fair. is that if you talk about misogyny you. and anti-Semitism, yes. yeah, yes, we erased you. Yeah. Self-loathing. But if you talk, if you talk about Katie Halper in the wrong way, you get a wave of death threats and rape threats, and we didn't want that to happen because oh, that's true. Yeah, I sick because I sick my followers on onto people. Yeah. Oh, that's well. Well, that leads into the question of the day which is about this whole brouhaha, which is going to force uh, all of us to explain a little bit of the background anyway. But so, Jesse, you became the focus of an incredible amount of insane attention in the last week or so. Um, can you sort of give us the chronology of what happened? I mean, it, it, this is tied into something to Substack, which we're all, which uh, Katie and I are both connected to as well. Yeah. Um, but just if you could just uh, sort of lead us through what what happened to, to cause all this controversy. Yeah, I mean, so anyone who wants can pull up the articles I've written about uh, gender dysphoria. One of them was sort of defending a doctor who was uh, his clinic was shut down because he was falsely accused of some stuff. Everyone agrees that's true. My reporting, I think, led to a lawsuit and the hospital gave him a settlement. No one disputes the facts of that. Um, I was accused of, of defending conversion therapy because he was accused of conversion therapy. So by the associative property of internet bullshit, if you defend someone who's accused of a thing, that means you're in favor of the thing. Wasn't part of his complaint in the lawsuit that he was improperly con- accused of conversion therapy? I don't this remember is, the details. Dr. Zucker, and, and right? It, Zucker, yeah. And and the fact of the matter is that I think his approach to deciding when kids should transition is more conservative than others. But this idea that he was like torturing kids and trying to get them to go from trans to cis, just, mm-hmm. there's not evidence for that. Um, since then, there's been basically internet weirdos popped up trying to start uh, basically sexual rumors about me, which is very creepy. This is also a subplot of Alice Drager's book, Galileo's Middle Finger, which is what got me into all of this. If you write about these issues in the wrong way, people try to destroy you. So you, there'd be like sock puppet accounts that'll be like, my friend had this experience with Jesse, you would not believe over and over and over since 2017. Um, I was able to mostly ignore it because like it was just, it is pseudonymous internet sock puppet accounts. I don't know who's doing them. There's nothing I can do about it. Eventually it got picked up by a couple of very mainstream writers, Nicole Cliff at Slate and uh, Jude Doyle. And they just like, have sort of said unhinged shit about me. And the most recent brouhaha was Jude Doyle said in a Substack piece about how he's thinking of leaving Substack because bigots like me are on it, that everyone knows I have stalked so many trans women. Like the phrasing was like, there's two, there's so many stories 
he can't think of a trans woman who doesn't have a negative story right. about me. Uh, okay, so here's the quote uh, from from uh, his article, which is called "In Queers We Trust, uh, All Their All Their Others Pay Cash," and it's it's about Substack, and it says they host Jesse Single, a high profile supporter of anti trans conversion therapy, who is also widely known to fixate on and stalk trans women in and around the media industry. I would list Jesse's target. Uh, but at this point, I don't know a trans woman in media who doesn't have a story. Uh, so that's that's that's, that's a highly specific. Yeah. Uh, kind of, kind I of that, you know, in, in the in the news media, like you, it, it jumps out at you because stalk is a word that's right. it's associated with a crime. So normally, you know, it, it's a pretty dramatic thing to say uh, in print. Um, what is he referring to there? I don't know. I mean, it's a mix of the sock puppet accounts. And then there's that thing where once you, you guys have both seen this, I'm sure once you become controversial, people will go back and revisit their past interactions with you. So uh, someone posted a list of all the harassment I've done last night or two days ago. This would be like, I would quote retweet someone and say, this is a lie. This is not true. This is considered harassment. I'm a harasser. And then, so disagreeing becomes harassment at some point that's repeated enough harassment becomes stalking i i'm sure by next week someone will accuse me of having like murdered somebody it's just it's this sort of um concept creep and harm inflation but Mm. no i do not know what this is in reference to in terms of like a specific person i stalked i think that it's so brilliant and and dishonest to say like it would honestly be easier for me to count on an, um, one hand the number of trans women who have not been stalked by him. Like the idea that you don't have to name names a, because yeah. everyone is, then fine. Then go and find all the trans people, trans women who, who Jesse has not stalked. If that's if the numbers weigh so heavily the other way. And it's just it's absurd. And um, I'm already getting angry, but I just want to like put it out there that people are already going to be responding to this like, they make so much money. Why are you having them on your show? He's a straight white cis man. And it's just an interesting thing that these conversations like you can never for some people, you can't ever even engage in these without first kind of like uh, it's like unless the person is not finance like is is impoverished and then they make up another excuse. But unless the person is impoverished, it's like violence to even talk about it like you are having any success. Yeah means that we shouldn't even care about this. Well, that's another thing that that Jude Doyle wrote on Substack. So Jude announced that uh, they're going to be leaving Substack. A bunch of people have announced this. They're going to be leaving Substack over in protest of of Substack's platforming transphobes like Jesse and Glenn Greenwald and Andrew Sullivan. And uh, and so they're going to they're going to move to some other platform. My idea is that everybody should just join that platform and then and then slowly (laughs) they'll just get driven (laughs) off of the Internet. But so one thing yeah. that Jude wrote was that, you know, why I saw this on Twitter yesterday. Why is Jesse Jesse isn't going to prison? Why is Jesse oh complaining God, about that. being censored and about not <laughs> being able to get published? And at the same time, if you're going to be someone who pretends to care about workers, you yeah. need to care about writers getting deplatformed. But instead, they are the people doing the deplatforming. It's just so fucking inconsistent. Yeah. Well, yeah, but uh, so I want to ask that. about that too yeah. because there's two different things going on here. First, I guess Jesse, the, like I, I should ask what what to doing that Atlantic cover story and some of the other stories you did subsequently. What did that? Uh, how did that affect your career? 
generally, but because this, the second part of this equation is you, you end up on Substack, which is essentially a home for people who've kind of been pushed out of uh, mainstream media in some cases. I mean, not, not, not everybody, but the demand here is essentially like, we don't want you to publish anywhere. Like not only do we not want you in regular media, we want you out of this other thing too, which is, which is kind of ominous, but uh, can you talk about the progression of how, how this even covering this topic has, has affected your career? Yeah. So the Atlantic cover story was, was um, focused on, you know, a 12 or 13 year old wants to go on puberty blockers and hormones. What should that process look like? It included, there was like a 750 word section early in the article about how trans people have been cut off from medical care historically and how wrong that is. Cause it is, uh, the story was very clear about that, but because it was seen as just asking questions, that's the phrase they always use on, on what is in fact a difficult issue. It was viewed as anti-trans. I would just say people should read it and decide for themselves. Here's where the conversation gets complicated. I cannot claim in any sense to have been canceled as a result of that. I had crazy shit written about me. I had people lie about me. I think by any reasonable metric, it, it enhanced my platform. And I'm much uh, safer in journalism, uh, you know, a few years later than I am. The problem is, I don't know if that's true in terms of like, if I do want to pitch to mainstream institutions, which, you know, maybe that's just the way it is. No one has a right to be published everywhere, but I know from Twitter that a bunch of editors at big publications think I stalk trans women, which is the sort of thing that just like eats your soul. I mean, Matt, you've had it, you've had experience with false. I mean, it, it, it destroys you to see people publicly saying shit about you and refusing to provide evidence that isn't true. The other thing is I, I, I think people in me and Katie's position, there's a risk of going like the full intellectual dark web Dave Rubin yeah. route. And I, you know, I, I don't think cancel culture is a bigger threat than like Trump. I don't think you should build your career out of fighting cancel culture. I think conservatives are sometimes the most aggressive cancelers of all, you know, Iraq right. war critics. You got fucking, they don't invite you on MSNBC because of your Russiagate skepticism. So, you know, the risk is getting typecast. I think Katie and I would both like to continue writing for mainstream publications. Katie just said on our last episode, she was told by an editor at a national publication she writes for that she just can't write there that often because the staffers get mad every time they do. And these days it's 25-year-old staffers and web producers who basically decide what arguments are aired. We know this firsthand from the Times where they make personnel decisions that are usually left to more experienced journalists. Right. And the other thing is, like, so even if there are editors who, who believe that Jesse has right. been smeared and libeled and would like to support him, if you have a bunch, a bunch of, uh, you know, if you have something that you want that you want covered or whatever, why would you go to Jesse when you could go to so many other freelancers who aren't going to result in, in you getting complaints from your staffers? So even if we're not seeing this, even if Jesse's you know, book hasn't been canceled yet, um, even if he's still getting published at places like New York Magazine where he has existing relationships, I am sure there are lots of editors who will not touch a Jesse single story because it just, no matter how good it is, no matter how thorough a journalist he is, it just comes with headaches. And, and yeah. I, should, I should be clear that because we've been so fortunate because of the podcast and because even this controversy led to a big surge of both Patreon and Substack subscribers, I can, I'm fine. Like of all the people to worry about in journalism, don't worry about me. But if this had happened to me 10 years earlier when I wasn't as established and couldn't just build my own audience on Substack, yeah. I would have been screwed. So just think about the incentives. Like if you're a 25-year-old journalist now, why would you possibly touch one of these hot-button issues when it could overnight ruin your reputation forever? I'm much more worried about those people than myself. I'll be fine. 
Well, ex except there was a moment after this story pu was published when one of the things uh, that Jude was complaining about was this uh, these Substack Pro advances that uh, some people have gotten. Like the, the company has offered uh, essentially a guaranteed money for a year um, for as an incentive for people to come join Substack. And uh, Jude was complaining that uh, you know that he hadn't been offered that. And when apparently the company did offer uh, a Substack Pro deal, uh, the response was like, "I won't take it unless you get rid of Jesse Single." And and oh, that, okay. that that that's why this was that like a weird caused... piece and hard to follow because because they didn't really say that. Okay, well, now well, I'm so I, I just want to clear this up because I contributed to accidental misinformation here. My understanding is that they told Jude, uh, Jude they would be open to having that discussion. I don't think they officially offered, but Jude presented that as I'm not even going to talk to them unless they get rid of Jesse Single and, and Graham Linehan. That, that's another story. But okay, yeah, they, so it's basically like um, I wasn't yeah, offered they, a good pay deal, and then in order to have a discussion with about, about said pay deal, potential pay deal, I will not be having that unless you fire Jesse. Yeah, it's an interesting negotiating tactic that failed because now Jude is going elsewhere. I also, I, I wasn't offered any money, uh, any pro deal, just for the record. But but nobody can nobody can nobody can even name a victim. It's fucking QAnon. This gets to another question, and, and I know you've both talked about this on your your podcast. Uh, I remember you talking about this in the case of the Don, Donald McNeil reporting with the Daily Beast coverage there's often like an allegation of something bigotry but they don't get into the specifics right. of it yeah. like you'll 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 have a word that's thrown around and then you won't actually hear what the details are but the the description itself is the characterization is powerful but uh what i thought was particularly scary about your, your incident jesse is that it was trying it was an attempt to replicate all of those kind of mainstream newsroom dramas in like a subscription only format, right? Like, so you, yeah. you have all these, everybody's who works in a mainstream news organization has gone through a thing now where the newsroom wants somebody gone and oftentimes it happens, like whether it's James Bennett or McNeil or whatever. But here they're essentially, essentially trying to do that with an independent contractor, which is which which felt like a mad, <laughs> crazy escalation to me. What, what's weird about it is like these guys, they don't just talk about me. They talk about you. They talk about mm -hmm. Frey DeBoer. They talk about Glenn Greenwald. There, there is this weird simmering resentment that is part jealousy, part sort of political beef. Although they often won't explain it. I don't. I still don't know exactly what it is. Jude thinks I've written that's incorrect because he hasn't said so. Um, it's it's eliminationist rhetoric. Yes, apparently. Yes. Yeah. The, the, my cover story where I said trans people should be eliminated. I'm sorry. I I should remember yeah. that. Um, people are going to edit that and clip it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So so they start with that. They hate us. They want us to not be able to make money off Substack. But then they try to build some sort of principled argument for why we should be kicked off, which is sort of insane because people are choosing to pay to read my work. Well, I hope I, success is the best revenge, and I'm, yeah. uh, I think we're both glad that your your uh, podcast is doing well. And and Jesse, where, where can people find you? Um, uh, Blocked and reported, or JesseSingle.substack.com, and Twitter, and uh... and Blocked and reported also has a Patreon, right? And yeah. I'm on Substack. I have a Substack that I never update called Moose Nuggets. It's about canine testicles. <laughs> it's, oh. it's about your it's dog's good. testicles. It's right? <laughs> That's a whole drama, right? Um, have you made a decision about that? You know, oh, I'm is not, it a bad transition? I, I, it is. I, I'm deciding whether or not to castrate my dog. Um, what, I've, what I'm leaning towards right now is keeping his testicles and cutting off his penis. 
Um, we'll see how it goes, but. Really? <laughs> no. No, Mike, my, my, our dog is sick. I'm not cutting off the dog's neck. Oh, I'm so, I was like, oh, yeah, well, I'm uh, so dumb. I don't know about animals. <laughs> well, whatever you decide, good luck with it. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent, Katie. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, and, thanks, uh, Jesse, yeah. thanks, thanks for coming. Thanks. Guys, thank you. Thanks thank you so much. That whole thing is yeah. great. Uh, well, that was great. Yeah, that was great. People have no idea what's going on with this up stack, by the way. So we got to do like a 10 hour explainer. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be 10 hours. Look, the we obviously we moved from Rolling Stone to do Substack. There are some technical issues and some logistical issues that are going to take some working out, but we'll get there. You will eventually be able to get the podcast in all the same places uh, that you got it previously. The question right now is whether it's going to be via the same feed or via a new yeah. feed. And we're still we have, working that we're out. We're like a thousand years old and have no idea what this is, this brave new world of RSS feeds. Um, yeah, I'm like, I'm almost a boomer old. The important thing is here's the deal. Ready, guys? Okay, make sure you go to Substack and we are releasing free material and we are releasing paid only material. I sound so resentful. This probably isn't very welcoming. It's um, welcoming. No, it's you welcoming. To to, okay. but, you have, but you have to go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Usefulidiots.substack.com. And we have already released the main audio episode and the main video episode. And next, you'll already be able to, by the time you're listening or viewing this, access the Substack only audio and video. Right. So you'll, don't you'll freak get out. The hang of this. You'll get yeah. the hang of it. Don't freak out about, we'll have an RSS feed for you shortly. And don't freak out about, oh, is it not free? No, it's free. It's free and then extra paid. No one yeah. is getting any less podcast or video than before. Yeah, this was the workaround when we moved from Rolling Stone to here. We knew that some people who are used to getting the show for free were not going to appreciate paying for it. The solution that we came up with was we'll just make more content. Yeah. So it's basically as much content as you were getting before for free. If you want to subscribe and pay uh, pay extra, there's going to yeah. be some more content, and that will help us pay the bills and yeah. do the technical stuff. But uh, that's up to you. So thanks so much for everybody who's already yeah, supported the show, and uh, we're glad to be continuing. Yeah.